This is Amy Cohen Epstein, founder, president, and executive director of the Lynn Cohen Foundation and The Seam, the series for education and awareness in medicine. In this podcast, I'll be interviewing researchers, doctors, scientists, female founders, entrepreneurs to talk about women's health, wellness, and preventive care. Take a listen. I mean, I always say this, but I'm beyond excited to be talking to you today, Elise Walker. And I'm going to start by telling you a little story. I've never done this before. I'm born and raised in Los Angeles. Right after college, I moved away for like 14 years. So I was in New York for three or four years, Washington, D.C. for five years, and then overseas in the Middle East for five years and moved back to L.A. in 2012. And I was dropping, I think it was my oldest son at baseball in the Pacific Palisades in West LA. And I had to drop him like an hour early for, you know, warm ups or whatever. And I didn't want to sit around at the field. So I said, oh, I'm just going to wander into the Palisades village. And that was before Caruso's development. So the whole Palisades was the Palisades village. And I hadn't been there probably since I was a teenager. And I stumbled into Elise Walker having no idea what it was and walked straight into Wendy Goldsmith, who it was a stylist there who I'd known as a teenager. And I looked at her and I was like, oh my God, where am I? And she said to me with no sarcasm in her eyes, no sarcasm in her voice. She was like, welcome to paradise. (laughs) And, And I was looked around for a few minutes. I'm like, oh my God, this is, this is paradise. This is like the shopping fashion mecca of any place I'd ever been. And I've been around and I was so excited. I was late to my son's baseball game because I was knee deep and stuff at your store. And so I think that it's just overwhelmingly amazing. The brand that you have built that is paradise in real life, in brick and mortar and virtually as well. And that's obviously something to be celebrated. And I just want to open up with like, how'd you get here? <laughs> and you can tell me the, the long version, the short version, whatever it is. How did I get here? Well, not how most people would think anyone would get into fashion. My family was all in the shoe business. So I was surrounded by retail, wholesale, product, production. But I was so proud of my mother and my father, but it wasn't anything I was ever interested in doing, even though I worked for both of them on and off, you know, through high school. And then I went to college and I actually studied mathematics and a little bit of art history and a little bit of architecture. And I wanted to work on Wall Street because it was the 80s. Just to pause you for a second, you didn't just go to college. You went to Columbia and were an applied mathematics major. Like that's that's sort of no joke (laughs) to say the least. One side of my brain can operate pretty well. But if you ask me any reading, writing comprehension, you'll see I'm very lopsided, very poor at that side. So much so that anytime we get a new hire on our team, someone will text them like, just so you know, when Elise emails or texts you, she's not angry at you. It's just how she (laughs) types. So I'm not so good with words, but I'm pretty good with numbers or it's where at least where I'm comfortable. 
which wound up being useful once I entered the the fashion world. But again, love fashion my whole life. I love a lot of things. Probably my favorite things are art and interior design and architecture. I actually think that I'm lucky enough to mix a little bit of that into my retail. And it's one of the reasons we're talking today is while I was in college, my mom was complaining that her stomach was hurting and food wasn't feeling right. And she went doctor to doctor to doctor. It went on for nine months and undiagnosed, which I'm sure is something we will get to today. And finally, one of our neighbors who was a gynecologist, but wasn't our family gynecologist because we were best friends and neighbors, just heard his wife saying, what? Barbara's still sick? And he literally walked through the backyard to my house, looked at my mom's swollen tummy. She was 40 years old. And my mom called me and said, Dr. James just used the C word on a Sunday afternoon. He canceled all surgeries. She was brought in Monday morning and she was diagnosed stage four ovarian cancer at 40 years old. So 40 years old, I'm 20 years old. First, I helped my mom's business because I love it and I know it. I've gone to probably, oh God, 500 shoe shows in my lifetime, (laughs) definitely at least. So I always went with her when I could, especially because I was at Columbia. So if she went to the New York shoe show, I went along with her and my aunt. So I was very familiar with the buying, but again, wasn't my plan. So first I started helping her store since she went through surgeries and chemos. And then 18 months later, she passed away at age 42. I was exactly at the time, literally of Gilda Radner, who I really think brought ovarian cancer front and forward. It was kind of the first time it was like in the public eye. We used to hide the news and hide the TV when Gilda Radner kept going backwards. And then when she passed, I remember she was like a few months ahead of my mom, but basically they both had the same 18 month cycle, which can still unfortunately be common with ovarian cancer today. Although there's more people are looking for the signs and the symptoms. And again, we'll get to that. So fell into my family business again, which I loved and I was very proud of, but that was not the plan at all. And I wasn't very happy about it because it chose me. I didn't choose it, right? Plus it was a very sad time in my family's life. It took me a few years, but I wrapped my arms around my mom's business. Once I gained a little bit of confidence, I started making the store have a bit more of my flair, even though my mom's flair was, I think, amazing, but it still had to, you know, suit what I was representing the business now. And I've been in retail ever since. So I started off in shoes, but my husband had a really exciting offer for a bank to open a branch and we moved west in 96. So we had two little boys, three and five years old, Ryan and Kevin. And we went west and I sold my mom's little company. And I said, I'm never going to be in retail again. And... (laughs) We lived in the Palisades. I consulted for people who bought my company. I consulted for Planet Blue for a little bit. They had a shoe store for a while. So I consulted for their shoe store. And I realized I love people more than anything. I love 
product. I love strategy. I love, love, love community. Uh, it's a gift I actually got from my mom. My mom was very, very social and had about a hundred best friends. And yeah. I'm very social and I really have about a hundred best, 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 best friends. So that combination has always been something that's kept me super excited and I'm always eager to learn more or maybe expand our business at certain times in my career because I love the challenge. I love the math. I love the social aspect. I love building the product, fighting for the brand assortment, kind of like the whole entire process. So moved to California, said never going to be in retail, but I missed it. And then in 1999, I opened my first Elise Walker store, little tiny 800 square foot store in Pacific Palisades, one block from my kids' school so I could pick them up every day. We have eight stores today. We have six Elise Walker stores and we have two town by Elise Walker, which are more casual. And if you go into any Elise Walker store, you will see there's always gummy bears behind the counter because that was the way I'd get my kids every day after school to be like, let's go to mommy's store. <laughs> I love and that. then all the kids wanted to go. They'd say like, let's go get the gummy bears. And, and that was the way I got all the kids to come into my store at three o'clock. Next year will be 25 years old since that first little store in Pacific Palisades. So I would say retail sort of found me, fashion really found me. And then, you know, we all have challenges in our life. Obviously, my mom's sickness and her passing was a challenge for me and my family. It took me a long time, but I went right back into everything I learned from both my mom and my dad. And, and I've been in this business ever since. And you've kept her her spirit alive in your stores by what like you inherited from her, right? The sense of community and socialization. I mean, I always sit on the couch in your store and people are schmoozing and talking and it's a very community vibe that you've built. Almost every store, I think every store has chandeliers and a couch because I want it to feel like a home. You know, everyone has a different business strategy hours there's like we want to make a friend a fashion friend or a friend for life so we want to build with you one of the things i'll always tell remind people that have been with us for years we have our own fashion family from behind the scenes i have some people that have been with the company close to 20 years which in retail life is like 100 and <laughs> it feels sometimes like 100 years for me as well but we try to have the balance of this is new, this is hot, keep this, this is from last year, we can build upon it. And one of the most important things, I think, not just in my business, but truly in any business, is to have the confidence to tell a customer, a client like, Amy, you can't really tell someone I don't like that on you, because sometimes that hurts their feelings. But like, Amy, I don't love, we can do better. So you're basically saying, I don't really like that on you, but in yeah. a gentle way. Cause some women love the harsh, like, oh, take it off, terrible. But I had one time that backfired on me. So now I'm like, oh, you got to just be <laughs> gentle. Oh, I think we can do a little better. So you don't lose a sale in any business when you tell someone that. You gain trust and you might have made a friend for life. 
Yeah, absolutely. The gaining trust part, a hundred percent. And as a, someone who loves to shop, I, I always appreciate when I get that, you know, yeah, I, I don't want to walk out and then a day later be like, why did I buy this? This looks terrible on me, you know? Or we've all been in stores sometimes where you can't even zip the dress up and someone's like, oh, that looks great on you. You're like, it doesn't look great on me, <laughs> you know, but so that's, you know, something behind the scenes that we're constantly always working on having that confidence because then you just can build. We want people to shop with us again for decades. Yeah. And now we have so many opportunities to do so at different stores all over the country. And then of course, online. Yeah, we we just launched EliseWalker.com last year. So it's a new website and it's just really representing what my stores carry on our point of view. We have a, a, a pretty large size run and scale. We go from casual, a little bit sexy, but overall we're, we're like, I always say I love a cardigan and a turtleneck and a coat. Like I still, even though I've lived West for the last more than 25 years, I still have that East Coast I think kind of sensibility. Um, Actually, a friend of mine just said she came in our shop up here in in St. Helena. And she said, don't you ever sell me another coat again. I have no, since I've known you, I've bought 20 coats. I love, (laughs) that's the New Yorker in me. I love coats and I'm in LA too. I love sweaters and coats. I get so excited when it's 55. And boots. And And boots. boots. I love it. 100%. So our stories, you know, the hard part of our lives have been very similar. I was 16 when my mom was diagnosed with ovarian cancer and 21, which I think is the same age as you when she passed away. And I actually wanted to be in finance too. I always thought I would be. My father was in finance and I had multiple internships and summers during college in New York, working at different firms and going to IPO lunches. And that was like my thing. I was definitely going to do that. And then when my mom passed away, I ended up in New York and I was working for a technology company. It was like 1999, 2000. And they asked me to start their nonprofit arm and build a foundation within the company. And I was young. I was 22 when my mom died. I was 23 or four when this was going on. And I said, I don't know if I want to do that. Like if I'm going to really dive into that world, I'm going to do it for something I'm really passionate about. And maybe similarly to you, I've devoted my entire adult life to raising funds for ovarian cancer research, for preventive care for women like us who have a history of cancer in their family, maybe at increased risk. But for me, it was really more about keeping my mom's spirit alive. And she, probably very similarly to your mom, I mean, it's 25 years since my mom passed away. And I can probably say twice a week, I run into someone who stops me, sort of grabs my arm and says, your mom was my best friend. You know, I miss her. And a hundred best friends for sure. When there was a dinner party and she didn't know anyone at the table, it was sort of, she felt like it was her job to make sure everyone had a good time and socialized and left with a smile on their face. So for me, it's been about, you know, holding that dear and trying to know that a lot of that was planted inside me, but to keep that really alive and well and thriving and string it through all the parts of my life, which is, it's been hard to do at times, but obviously has changed my path and I think made it so much richer. 
And I would argue that you were saying something similar. Yeah. Did your mom have the BRCA gene? So amazingly, no. My mom was sick for five years. So back in 1993, when she was diagnosed, having ovarian cancer for five years was pretty much unheard of. Yeah. Um, yeah, most women who lived that long lived. And so it was, it was shocking. And she was diagnosed with late stage three ovarian cancer. And she was not tested for the BRCA gene, which she got tested probably year three or four. I have two sisters. We don't have the BRCA gene either. But because her diagnosis was so young, older than your mom, she was diagnosed at 48 and passed away at 53, it puts us in an increased risk category. Uh, my mom was BRCA. Mm. Her parents are BRCA. My aunt is BRCA. I have a, um, but I'm BRCA negative and my brother's BRCA negative and we're still high risk but we're possibly a little less high risk than you since we know our mom had the BRCA gene. Yeah. So, you know, we still have extra testing and all of that stuff, but we don't have the BRCA gene. Yeah. And there's been incredible research that's been done in the last, honestly, within the last decade. And one of the things I don't know if you know this that they found that the majority of ovarian cancers actually start in your fallopian tubes. Yeah, that's new. And having your fallopian tubes removed is a significant risk reduction for you. And my sisters and I all have that done at 40 when I was done having children. So obviously you're, you're sterile after that. It's sort of amazing. So it's only your fallopian tubes. You don't touch your ovaries. You don't touch right. your uterus. So it doesn't change your hormone production, your estrogen or your progesterone levels that your body naturally gives off. And it's a really easy surgery. It's done laparoscopically. It's outpatient. Right. And oh, wow. yeah, I mean, it's sort of, you know, almost a no brainer. And it's one of the, you know, hard things about ovarian cancer, as you know, that the signs and symptoms are often so subtle and come at a woman's time in their life where they're not paying attention to it, or it's sort of masking itself as something else that they've been through or dealt with. And so that's something that we can actually do that is right. relatively easy. One of the things that I uh, was told along the way, which made so much sense, is that one of the reasons ovarian cancer is so hard to detect is, well, just like it's your private part. So like people keep things private, like, oh, I don't want to tell anyone about that. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's, and that was one of the things when we were out there really trying to get people out for early detection. It's like, let's make our private parts, not private. Like talk about what issues you're having. Women are so used to, you know, being a mom or being a best friend or being a sister. And it's like pushing aside our own personal issues. So that was one thing. But the other thing is your ovaries. I mean, they keep our species alive, right? So they are so well protected and hidden to protect reproduction that it's hard to detect anything going on in there because it's so well hidden so that we can multiply. It was designed to be little and quiet and private and not protected. Yeah, 100%. I think those two things coupled together, you hit the nail on the head. I think I would add to it, probably what you were saying too, is as women, we often put ourselves last. 
we put everyone else first. And when we have something going on that is private and probably feels embarrassing, we're even less likely to talk about it or to do something about it because we're busy doing other things and busy taking care of other people. Also, as you 100% experienced with your mom and sadly 20 plus years later, it still happens. Doctors are not thinking about it and they're not diagnosing it unless they're 100% looking for it, which they often aren't. And so you alluded that your mom, you know, her lower abdomen was really distended from the tumor and the fluid around it. You know, I have had so many women say to me over the last years that they went in, they said to their doctor, this is so crazy. I'm, you know, I have this like big bloated tummy. I've never had this before. And the answer they got back was, you should just start playing a little more tennis. You know, you need to walk or work out more. It's your body going into the next phase of life and holding on to the fat in that part of your belly. And they kept saying, no, but it's just not that, you know, nothing's changed except for that. And it takes multiple doctors and advocating for yourself, which in general, as women, we don't do a great job to figure out and to get to the right person and get the right diagnosis. And like you said, that can take months and those months are crucial. Those months are literally life and death. Like um, at least was a stage three. So, I mean, my mom might, if my mom was stage four, maybe if she was stage three, she would have had five years instead of, uh, you know, a year and a half. And, and then if stage one or stage two, that's a huge, huge difference, but it's nearly impossible to find yeah. one and two. It's very hard to find. I've been lucky enough to meet a few women who had trouble elsewhere and they found early ovarian cancer, one or two, kind of by accident. I believe in happy accidents. I don't really think it was an accident, but that I've heard a few times. So all of those people have had great you know, recovery rates because it was so early. But it's early detection, which we both know, but it's also like it's education because I mean this and I'm sure it's, I did an event called the Pink Party for yeah. 10 years in LA for Cedar sinai and to raise money for Dr. Beth Carlin, who lives and breathes. She's a woman advocate for early detection, ovarian cancer. She, she's in Washington, D.C., fighting for women's rights. Women's rights meaning like, you know, even a sonogram, like someone just doesn't say, oh, you can get a sonogram. Like insurance has to approve it. Most people can't just afford to to do it. And uh, now I've been doing early cancer detection for uh, St. Helena Hospital for Dr. Candace Westgate, who impressed me on my, I always say, remember our first date? I mean, a gynecological checkup is hardly a date. But I'm like, remember our first date? She was so knowledgeable on early symptoms. I just was so impressed by her. But either way, education is the most important thing. And going back to what I was saying to you is when I did the Cedars-Sinai one, which was 2004, I started it. And even today, it's a little better today. If you ask, the average person, what is an early test or sign for ovarian cancer? They'll say, oh, don't worry, I, I had my pap smear. And 100%. that has nothing to do with ovarian cancer. So that's just, you know, no fault to the person who thinks that. They haven't 
been educated. It's not their fault. Like someone needs to say, you need to know this, right? There's so much work to do. So much work to do. I just recently did a talk to a group of 30 something year old women, highly educated, working women in Los Angeles. And at the end, you know, one of the gals who organized it said, Amy, what's the takeaway? And I said, well, first and foremost, you all should have a gynecologist who you know and you trust. And I would say half the room had never seen a gynecologist before. They had never seen a gynecologist. A couple of them said, well, I'm not sexually active, so I don't need to go see a gynecologist. So it was beyond a pap smear doesn't detect ovarian cancer. It was women who, you know, don't tell, don't talk. I don't, that's like too much. I don't need to do that. I'll go to the dentist and I'll go to the dermatologist, but I'm not going to a gynecologist. I wonder since more women are out there in the workplace taking the world by storm, I must add, I wonder if it even pushes back some annual checkups and self-care because now like, you know, women CEOs are on the rise and, you know, women in the workplace just killing it. So I wonder if that actually works against. I think it does. I think it's prioritizing and saying and explaining and and educating women all over the country, all over the world that, no, this is a priority. This is your health. And if you don't have that, you can't go to work anyways. Right. And it's preventive health, right? So it's, it's education coupled with with prevention. So prevention starts with, you know, know who you are, know your body, know what's normal, and then know that normal changes as you grow and you change and you go through puberty, then you go through almost the second puberty around 20 years old. And then in your 30s, 40s, if you've had children, your body's changing again. So what's the norm? What's your base level? And what do you do when you you get outside of that? When do you make the move to say something to advocate for yourself and to go see the appropriate specialist, just a doctor, and tell them this doesn't feel right. This isn't what my body's normally like. And you said, you know, that's really hard to do with your ovaries. But a lot of women have actual, my mother had diarrhea for one year leading up to her diagnosis. They say she'd be so upset if I talked about this publicly, but she did and she never said anything. And they probably thought it was colitis or this or... I was told it was stress. It was stress. Yeah. Doing too much. And it was a very private, embarrassing thing. So she didn't talk about it. And truthfully, that was 100% a a sign that her body, something was wrong. Did she go to gastroenterologists? Because my mom did and it was misdiagnosed. My mom, and, and I just want women to know this. She had an upper GI and a lower GI. And in both cases, the cancer didn't show. Jeez. So I think it's, you know, also good for us to be educated. But I think, you know, that a really good doctor will say, okay, I don't see anything this way. I don't see anything this way. We have to now go to the next thing. Um, I did just have a friend of mine who had a crazy rheumatory marker off the charts, high or low, his doctor sent him to a rheumatologist and he was fine. But that rheumatologist said, you're not fine. You're fine in my department. And then he sent them to someone else and it was cancer. So that was a great doctor to say, it's not in my area, but 
we're not stopping here. Do you know what I mean? It's educating the medical community as well. And, you know, you and I are really lucky. We've spent most of our lives on each coast where access to medical care is, you know, significantly better than people living in rural areas kind of down the middle of the country. And it's not just the women, right? It's the doctors and it's the medical professionals who need more education on women's health, on women's reproductive systems. And of it's not a private thing. It's it's a woman's body. And that is a hundred percent part, you know, of what we do and in our mission, because you can't talk about one without the other. Right. And also imagine how hard it is for the doctors. I mean, can you imagine how many women come in and say, I gained weight, I feel this, I'm bloated. Yeah. So how do you differentiate? Oh, let's go really dig and test this one for ovarian cancer. It's it's a hard judgment call, but I think that women have to really listen to themselves. And I always say, you know, men have certain strengths, women have certain strengths, but we have, I call them like tentacles. <laughs> like we can feel something is, is going on. We're like, oh no, no, get in here. Don't go in that car, lock yeah. the door. Like we have in motherly, you don't have to be, a, you don't have to actually have a baby to have a motherly instinct. As a female, we have like a radar sonar and I yeah. call them tentacles. Like you have to have the confidence, which really you get from friends talking to friends and sisters and girls supporting each other, right? To have the confidence to say, no, this is a different kind of bloat. This isn't middle age. This isn't, oh, you just had a baby. Like, And sometimes you need a support team to make you call that doctor back again and be like, no, I'm telling you, this is something else, right? Yeah. So you have to be your own advocate, I guess is what we're saying. In a very busy, overstimulated world with a ton of responsibilities, whether you work full-time or you don't, we all have a, a, a tremendous amount of responsibilities, but you have to really notice any kind of change, like, you know, even if it's not ovaries. Yeah, you got to put your mask on first. Number two, you know, doctors do their best job at listening, but it's so hard because some doctors have to bring in a certain amount of patients in a day and all. But, you know, a really good doctor does that. I I mean, the people I work with, I think are, are spectacular, but because of my family history, I haven't stopped till I found those, you know, spectacular people. Yeah. And there's that fine line that you were alluding to of listening and saying, I think it's this, and then crossing into, you know, let's test for everything and, you know, making someone, making yourself crazy or your doctor helping making you create, you know, we're, go into that like overload of information. And I think it is that, that line. And I think the more women know their bodies, right. And know their normal, and then have that really deep confidence that you can get yourself or you can gain from that community you've built around you to say to the doctor, you know, I just don't agree with you. Like it it just doesn't feel right. Or switching doctors. And people have a really hard time with that. When you're alone in a doctor's office and their diplomas are on the wall behind you, it's really hard for anyone to say, I don't think you're right. You know, that's like a really, really hard thing to do. And so I I do believe a lot of the education and prevention is is empowering women to be able to do that if they feel like it's well, necessary. I've been fortunate to really be surrounded by spectacular 
doctors that are ready to dig in, ready to share things that are on the horizon, things that are are still not working, but we're working on um, Mm -hmm. genetic testing and all that. But the average woman, not just in this country, but in the world, I mean, think of like all the single moms and they don't even have time to go get an extra test. So if they were to go to a gynecologist and say something's kind of not right, and that doctor were to order, let's just say a sonogram, right? A vaginal sonogram, which can sometimes detect tumors early, right? They have to have that time to leave work, someone to watch the kid. I mean, it's really, really, really hard. We all have to push for whether it's financial aid, educational aid, moral support. It's very hard. And, and I try really hard not to take for granted the medical community I've been fortunate enough to be exposed to, right? And that you've been able to as well. Plus, uh, we've taken the time to get educated, not by choice, because we were both smacked in the face with a huge loss out of left field. But hopefully, most people haven't had that experience. So they wouldn't really know to go into a doctor's office and be like, I'm not stopping until I figure this out, you know? 100%. I think the best thing to do is share stories like what we're doing too. Like I always, I remember my early years with the pool party, which was a community-based event. We, over the last what 20 years, um, I'm two, right now, $200,000 short of $15 million <laughs> raising. Amazing. All through friends, clients, I've used my friendships with celebrities. It's the only ask I ever do. I've never asked my friends that are in TV or writing or this and that, oh, can you wear this and post for me? I only make them show up for cancer events. And so when they get the call from me, they almost always say yes, unless, of course, they're busy or whatever. That's like our give and take. They know I'm not calling them to like, can you get us an autograph or can my kid go on set or whatever. It's always going to be the cancer, the cancer ask. And I think for that reason, I don't bother them too much, I hope. But we use community to one, give exposure, knowledge and build these events. But some of our events went up to a thousand people. Right now I'm doing a very small event, which is 150 people. But even you can have groups of 10 people with women talking. And if one person leaves and says, oh, shoot, I missed my mammogram. Do you know how many women missed their mammogram through COVID? And so it's like 10 women. Doesn't have to be a thousand women. Doesn't have to be a million dollar raise. Like 10 women get together and say, let's talk about these issues. Let's talk about early symptoms. And one person leaves and says, Oh, I'm going to go. I forgot. Let me call that. Like it, it saves lives. Right now I'm quoting Beth Pilot. She goes, it saves lives. She used I to love say Beth. that. These things that save lives. Yeah. And Beth was really, um, she's amazing. And I've known her forever too. And my mom knew her as well. She's just the best. And so let me tell you two seconds about what we do specifically, because yeah. I don't know, really know. So Obviously, my family started the Lincoln Foundation when my mom passed away. And about, like I said, about two years after that, 
I decided this is what I wanted to do with my life. So I changed it from a private family foundation into a public 501c3. I got an incredibly, you know, phenomenal group of women together to be my board of advisors, many of whom were my mom's friends who were experts in different fields and, and then a medical advisory board. And the doctors I work with, I started out working with said, you have to focus on preventive care. That is the way to tackle this disease. And that was in like 1999. 1999. And so we built within hospitals, we did four preventive care clinics for women who are potentially at increased risk for breast or ovarian cancer, because you're kind of, if you're at risk for one, you're at risk for the other. So there's four clinics. And in addition, two of our clinics see underserved, uninsured minority women. So almost half women, yeah, that we see and have from the beginning come in who would normally not have access to this care. And then we offer them genetic counseling, genetic testing, a full exam with a gynecologic oncologist, a breast oncologist, and then those doctors assess their actual risk and then give them a plan to, you know, different ways. For me, it was when you're ready, have your fallopian tubes removed, was talking about birth control pill, was talking about hormone balance, all of that, and then monitor you and you can go back and see these doctors. And one of the things that you said actually happens. So most of the women that come in, especially underserved minority, uninsured women, they come in for one thing and they leave with a diagnosis of something else. And they're convinced they have, you know, X, Y, and Z. And then they end up going through our clinic in LA. It's at LA County because it's LA County, Norris, USC. In New York, it's Bellevue Hospital and then NYU. And they, you know, get asked a bunch of questions, find out they're in this sort of higher risk category and go through the doctors at our clinic and often leave with a pre or a diagnosis. So like a pre-diagnosis of you're at higher risk for ovarian cancer, this is what we're going to do. And some of whom have found tumors while they're there. And like you say, it's not, it's not happenstance. It's not coincidence. It's something along the lines of the universe looking out for you, women's intuition, something. And it's been really incredible. And, you know, we've seen close to 20,000 women and have caught. Wow. That's amazing. Yeah. We've raised $25 million and, and we really you know, I've always taken the same line that you were saying, which is my goal isn't to reach millions and millions of women. My goal is to like start the spread in the, you know, the good kind of spread. And even talk, having these conversations with incredible women who are influential and have had, you know, really amazing life stories like you and spreading the word, you know, spreading the stories. And it's like a quilt, you know, where you just really get the information out there, even if it's sort of, you know, one by one by one. And I love that the most. I love these, you know, smaller intimate conversations or events with, you know, a couple dozen women. And like I said, the other day, just a couple coming up to me afterwards and saying, can you help me find a gynecologist? And my answer was, yeah, where do you live? Let's start with that. Let's make it as convenient as possible. And a hundred percent. So I'm on the same page. Yeah. That's amazing. That's amazing work you're doing. Thank you. It's been great. And this commitment that we made, and I'm speaking on your behalf too, to keep our mom's memory and her legacy alive in whatever way makes sense and whatever way, you know, 
I think helps us heal because I believe the healing process will be my entire life. I think grief is goes on till you know you move on. But I think that just doing that is extraordinary. And I know how hard it is because it can also be really painful and it can also, you know, be tough at times, but it just is so meaningful. And I think there's so much that we can do in our lives to really leave a legacy. And so to me, you're you know, you're so much more than Elise Walker, the paradise store in the Palisades in New York and St. Helena. Like your legacy is is really robust and, and so deep and meaningful. And I'm just so excited I got to talk to you about it today. Thank you so much. Well, thank you. I hope I taught that to my children because it's up to our children too to keep them up. 100%. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I really look forward to our events and the start of something new. Me too. It'll be amazing. Thank you so much. Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, Amy. Bye. Bye.